Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, hope you do, open them with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. While you're turning your Bibles there, let me mention a couple of things. Uh, Adam Shelton, some of you may remember Adam, a young man who moved to Palmetto from uh, Washington, Georgia, uh, about, I guess, eight months ago, and he started visiting our church and he joined our church. He's in the Army and uh, just finished uh, basic training, and he was here in the early service and uh, looked just great. Next month... In September, he will be deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, Adam is on our prayer list, so I urge you to pick up a prayer list every week and please pray for those troops and for everybody else who's on that prayer list. So just wanted you to know Adam was here this morning. Also, uh, let me share with you that Allie Braun, who is uh, one of Bobby and Karen Braun's children, Allie joined our church this morning by profession of faith to be baptized next Sunday morning. So uh, I just wanted to share that bit of celebration news with you today. All right. Uh, We've been looking at the God questions, questions God asked in Scripture. Most of the time when we think about God saying something, uh, we have in our minds that we think about him making a statement or issuing a command. But there are literally hundreds of times in the Scriptures where God asks questions of people. It's not so much that he's asking a question in order to gain information that he did not up to that point know. God asks questions in order to provoke thought in the people to whom he addresses the questions. And through provoking thought in us, as he asks us questions, hopefully our response to his questions will move us in a more intimate direction and in a, in a position or a direction in which we will grow spiritually in our relationship with Him. Well, uh, in the Old Testament, you see where God is quoted by the prophets or by Moses or by several of the writers asking questions. In the New Testament, usually when we hear God asking of a question or asking a question, it is Jesus. It's coming from the lips of Jesus. And so uh, that is certainly the case in Uh, The passage of Scripture uh, we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Mark chapter 4, beginning with with verse 35. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this 
Even the wind and the waves obey Him. The God question for this morning is, why are you so afraid? When I was in my last church, Concord Baptist Church, uh, on the Forsyth-Dawson County line, there was a, an afternoon in which we went to visit one of my deacons and his wife. And we uh, had a meal with them. We went to their house and we enjoyed the meal and we sat around in fellowship for a while. And it came time to leave. We got up and instead of going out the front door, they took us out the side door, which led from their kitchen area into their garage. The garage was open. And we walked from the garage out to where uh, our car was parked, just outside the garage on the driveway turnaround. When, as we were out there, just outside the garage, a bird flew into the garage. Now, the deacon with whom we had visited, had, when he came out of his door, had left the door open, the door to the house. Not only did the bird fly into the garage, but then the bird proceeded to fly into that door and throughout the house. It was at that point that I discovered something about this man's wife. She was crazy. She was absolutely crazy. She had, as it turned out, a condition that I had no idea she had until that very moment. They call it, and I know you've heard of it, ornithophobia. Ornithophobia is a fear, a desperate fear of birds. Now, I had no idea she had it until that bird flew into the garage and she went bazooka crazy. I mean, crazy. And, and that was just with the bird in the garage. She was going crazy. When that bird flew from the garage into that open door and throughout their house, she went beyond bazooka crazy. She started saying things to her husband that I have never heard a wife say to a husband before in my life. She said, Tony, you get in that house and you get that bird out of the house. Well, he was kind of lackadaisical about it. Tony was. He wasn't someone that could, you could just push into something. He didn't get all riled up. And he said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go in there in just a minute, Regina, and I'll get the bird out. She says, no, you're going in there right now and you're going to get that bird out or I will never set foot in this house again. She was serious as a heart attack. He went in the house. While she waited outside, it took him the longest to get that bird shushed back out of that door. And she refused to go in the house until the bird was out. I've never seen anybody with ornithophobia before. But brother, if, you, if you're ever around somebody who has a fear of birds, you need to stay clear of them when the birds come around. Well, in about uh, a year and a half after we came down here to Palmetto, this deacon and his wife were on their way to, uh, to Florida, and they knew that coming down 85, they would pass by the Palmetto exit, and so they got to thinking about us, and so they took a, a chance on calling us to see if we were at home. They wanted to stop by and see how we were doing. They didn't want to stay long, but they wanted to come see how we were doing. We just moved into our house on Ridley Road. They wanted to see it. We said, well, fine, come on over. Well, they come in. Uh, this uh, deacon and his, his ornithophobia crazy wife and his two children, really a great family. She was too. Um, and they came into our house. Now, I forgot, I'd forgotten about that episode at their house where the bird flew into their house. I'd totally forgotten about that until 
they walked into our living room. Now, if you've ever been in our house, you walk into the living room, you walk into the living room to the right and to the left, we have uh, a little kitchen uh, breakfast area. And on the side of that breakfast area, there was a bird cage and there was this bright yellow parakeet named Sonny. And Regina walked in to our living room and she looked over at that birdcage and her, the blood, all the blood in her face drained down into her toes. And I said, what's the matter? You look sick. And she couldn't even speak. She just pointed to that bird. The whole time they were there, which was all of maybe about 20 minutes, everybody else, we were talking with Tony, we were talking with the girls, and, and Regina kept her eyes fastened on that parakeet. You know, just for grins, I started to get that parakeet out, but I didn't. <laughs> they didn't stay long. She had a fear of birds. And even with that parakeet in that cage, locked in that cage, she was scared stiff. Ornithophobia. You know, uh, I know I've told you about Amanda's little dog, Lucy. You remember Lucy? She's, uh, she's five pounds. She's uh, ten and a half years old. And she's uh, solid white. She's half Maltese, half tiny toy poodle. And uh, don't tell Amanda I said this, but she's a demon dog. It's a demon dog. And her name is Lucy, and I've always contended. Now, Amanda disagrees with me on this, but I've always contended that her name is Lucy, short for Lucifer, because that's the way she is. Amanda loves that dog, absolutely adores that dog. Lucy and I do not get along. We do not get along. Lucy has attacked me before. She's brought blood out of me before. And it was, a, it was a very terrible scenario. Lucy has no fear. Well, almost no fear. When I say she has no fear, she doesn't fear any other dog anywhere. Now, we've got neighbors who raise pit bulls. They've gotten in trouble with some of those pit bulls. And I'll tell you, I don't like pit bulls. Well, obviously, I don't like Maltipoos either, but I certainly don't like pit bulls. If you have a pit bull, please forgive me. I don't mean to offend you, but I don't think anybody ought to own a pit bull. They're just dangerous and they're so unpredictable. But our neighbors have pit bulls. They've had anywhere from two to four of them at any given time. I don't know how many they have right now, but uh, when Lucy goes out into our backyard, which is a fenced-in backyard, she hears those dogs barking. And the only thing that keeps Lucy from from going out on an an all- uh, all-out attack and frontal assault on those dogs is the fence that keeps her in our backyard. She thinks she is as big as those dogs, and she would attack them. I'm glad that we had the fence because she would be ripped to shreds, but she would, she would go down fighting because she thinks she's as big as those pit bulls. She's not afraid of any dog, and she's not afraid of any human being. And the reason for that is she thinks she is a human being, and Amanda has not told her any different. But there is one thing she's afraid of. Lucy, our dog, Amanda's dog, has brontophobia. That's true. She has brontophobia. Now, that's not a fear of dinosaurs. But she has brontophobia. Now, the reason I bring this up is because that's the one thing that she and I have in common. We both have brontophobia. And I was reminded of it yesterday. I cut all of our grass yesterday. Uh, and when I got through cutting the grass, I, I started blowing off the debris off the driveway and the walkways around the house. And as I was doing that, it started raining. 
first gently, and then it just started pouring. Well, I was already soaking wet, so a little bit of rain was no problem. That just, you know, mixed up the rain water with the sweat water, and it was not a problem, no problem. So I kept on blowing off the, the debris while it was raining. Rain was no problem, but then it started thundering and lightning. And I could tell from the sound of the thunder that it was nearby. This was not way down in Noonan Thunder or way up in uh, Union City Thunder. This was the worst kind of thunder that, that you'll ever experience. It's Ridley Road Thunder. Ridley Road Thunder is the worst, the worst possible thunder because I live on Ridley Road. So any thunder that's there is the worst possible thunder. And I could hear it. And so when I heard it, I started blowing off my driveway a lot faster than I had been, getting in a hurry to get it done. Because brontophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning. And I think that's a justified phobia right there. Scared of thunder and lightning. Well, Lucy, Amanda's dog, also is uh, afraid of thunder and lightning. I mean, that dog, I don't know how she ever got afraid of it, but anytime she hears thunder or something that sounds like thunder, sometimes it can be a, the sound of a jet coming in to land as it comes over our house, or it can be the sound of somebody shooting off uh, a gun nearby. She thinks it's thunder, and she will, she will run, uh, jump on the, on the carpet, run into the bedroom and under the bed. If we're gone somewhere for an outing, and before we get back, a, a storm comes up and it's, it thunders and, and has lightning with it. We come into the house and Lucy will be shivering under the bed. She has brontophobia. She has a fear of thunder and lightning, a fear of thunderstorms. Well, the reason I bring up all these phobias and the reason I bring up brontophobia, the fear of thunderstorms and lightning, is this. Evidently, Jesus' disciples had brontophobia. It appears in this passage in Mark chapter 4 that they had a, a strong fear of thunderstorms, especially a thunderstorm that comes up unexpectedly and suddenly while they are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Mark chapter 4 finds Jesus and his disciples. They've left the eastern coast of the a sea of Galilee and they're going across to the other side. And the Bible says that there are several boats with them. Jesus is with them, but as they are on this boat, a storm comes up. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been over to the Holy Land and, and been on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, about four miles by five miles in size. But if you're ever on that lake, on the western coast, it's pretty flat, a little, few hills, but mostly flat. But on the eastern coast, you have these mountains, and the wind comes up those mountains and, and shoots down into the Sea of Galilee and can produce a sudden storm. And the waves that these storms, these sudden storms produce, can capsize small fishing boats in just a moment's notice. Uh, even, even today, the same thing, the same climatologist uh, uh, can tell you that these winds come down the Sea of Galilee and can uh, cause a storm that wrecks boats. Well, this happened while the disciples and Jesus were on the lake. The Bible says that the disciples were scared stiff. And they started looking for Jesus. And Mark says here that Jesus was down in the stern of the boat asleep. He was getting a nap. And Mark tells us a, a small detail that no other gospel writer tells us. He says that Jesus was down in the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion. Nobody else says that, only Mark. He was sleeping on a cushion. 
Now, what Mark is trying to tell us, I believe, is that Jesus didn't have a care in the world. There was nothing that was, that was uh, flustering him. There was nothing that was worrying him, uh, whether it was the bad steering of the ship by the disciples or if it was the thunder and lightning of the storm or if it was the wind and the waves coming over into the, the uh, center of the boat. None of that bothered Jesus. He was asleep on a cushion. And the disciples go downstairs and they wake him up. Lord, do you not care that we're dying? Do you not care that we're about to drown? And so Jesus gets up. Mark doesn't even have Jesus making a statement when he gets up. But he gets up and he comes to the top of the boat. He just raises his hand, says, quiet, which is hush, be still. And Mark says, and the other gospel writers tell us, that the waves calmed, the winds uh, stopped moving, the thunder stopped uh, uh, growling, and the lightning was silenced. And the water was just smooth and calm as glass. And the disciples, who had been terrified because of the storm, are now terrified because of Jesus. Did you see that? Mark says in verse 41, and they were terrified. They went from having brontophobia to Christophobia. They went from being afraid of the storm to afraid of the Savior who calmed the storm. I reckon if we're going to be worried about one thing, we might as well be fearful of another. Yes? Jesus turned to him and he asked this question, which is a question that he's still asking us today. Why are you so afraid? What is it in your life? What is it that you are confronted with? What is it that you are facing that is so paralyzing you that you cannot bring yourself to be the person God wants you to be and to do the things that God has called you to do. The whole chapter of Mark chapter 4 is about the kingdom of God and growing faith. In verses 1 through 20, Jesus tells the parable of the soils of the farmer who would throw seed in good ground and some bad ground, four different types of ground, and only one of those four types of ground was good ground where the seed produced and grew and multiplied its harvest. That's growing faith in a growing kingdom. When you go down into verses 26 through 29, again, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to, again, a farmer who throws seeds out that grow a little at a little at a time. First uh, the bud, then the kernel, and then the full uh, ear of the corn. Again, he's talking about growing faith in a growing kingdom of God. And then you come down to verses 30 through 34, and Jesus brings up this mustard seed. It's one of his favorite analogies, except this time he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that you plant in the ground. It's so small, but when it grows up, it creates a, a, a develops into a bush, a small tree that's big enough for tree, for birds to rest in and for uh, animals to come and, and feel safe in its shade. You know, I know you know this. Then in other places, mustard seed is likened to faith. You remember that? Jesus said this. He says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be moved into the sea. And he said, I tell you the truth, it will be moved. Now, he wasn't talking about us going up to Gwinnett County and... Uh, and, and getting out our Bibles and wrinkling up our eyebrows and meditating real strong and trying to get spiritual and all of a sudden in the middle of that spiritual meditation order Stone Mountain to go into Lake Lanier and it go. That wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about the mountains and the struggles and the trials that we face in our lives. Faith in Christ can help us 
through those struggles. And sometimes, not all the time, sometimes our faith or God responding to our faith will move the struggles. He'll either move the struggle or he'll help us in the struggle or he'll help us through the struggle. But throughout this whole chapter, every story in this chapter is about the kingdom of God growing and about the issue of faith within that kingdom. Now, all of that provides, provides us with a, a context or a background uh, from which we're able to see this story of Jesus and the disciples on the lake. Because on that lake... The disciples reveal a real lack of faith. Instead, they reveal some men who had strong fears. What is your fear? That's really what this question, why are you so afraid? It's about fear and the things that cripple us from being everything that God wants us to be. One thing that I think this... This, uh, not only this passage, but all of the Word of God teaches us about fear is this, that fear can be constructive. Fear can be constructive. I, I, I don't think we should go to the point of saying that all fear is bad. There is a constructive, productive fear. For instance, uh, it is, it is a, a soldier's fear in combat that will cause him or her to be alert in that combat and not be apathetic and taking a nap. A person who has a fear of catching disease will make sure that he or she washes their hands after going to the restroom or washes their hands before cooking certain things. A person who has a fear of getting run over by a car is not going to go running across Interstate 7585 down in midtown Atlanta in the middle of rush hour for fear that they would get run over. There are fears that are constructive. They actually save us from certain danger. Also, fear can be good when it is a fear of God. There is such a thing as a reverential fear of God that keeps us, if we are paying attention to it, from doing things that are un. Uh, disobedient to what God has commanded us to do. Now, some people say, oh, God is not a God of fear. God doesn't want us to fear Him in a trembling way. Well, uh, that's not all that God wants us to do, but I will tell you that according to the Word of God, there are times when we must fear God. And in that fear, we will either refrain from things that we shouldn't be a part of, or we'll actually obey God in areas in which we should obey Him. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says this, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So fear can be constructive. But as this story in Mark chapter 4 tells us, fear can also be very debilitating. It can paralyze us from being everything that we can be. It causes us to imagine things that aren't there. There's an old German proverb that says, Fear makes the wolf bigger than he really is. Fear makes the wolf bigger than he really is. The uh, former leader of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, he uh, had uh, a favorite story that he used to tell about his dad. He said, uh, one time when he was a kid, he said, in my father's office, he said, there was a man who came in. He said, now my father didn't like people who smoked and he didn't like people smoking around him. And there was one of his uh, employees who came in and this fella had remembered uh, too late that my father didn't like anybody who smoked around him. And he, so, he said, so that guy had a cigarette in his mouth and he pulled it out of his mouth and he stuck it in his pocket. 
And as they, he carried on a conversation with my, with my father, the cigarette lit a fire in the man's uh, uh, pants pocket and he started squirming around. He said, my father kept up the conversation going while he was there talking with him. And finally, the guy ended the conversation and went running out. Kofi Annan, a small boy at this time, was there and he told his dad, he said, dad, he said, that was a terrible thing you did. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you, you made that guy put the cigarette that he had in his pocket. He said, I did not do anything to the, to, of, of that kind. He said, I didn't tell him to put a cigarette in his pocket. He said, there's an ashtray over here. He could have put it there. He said, he could have smoked it. I wouldn't have liked it, but he said, I, I wouldn't have said anything about him. He said, he could have disregarded that cigarette into the trash can before he came into my office. He said, what you just saw here, son, is something that you need never to forget. He said, don't come crawling in the office. What he was really referring to is the fact that the, that the man, the, the, the employee, was so fearful of what he thought uh, Kofi Annan's dad would do that he acted ridiculously even though he didn't have to. Sometimes we act in ways that are uh, illogical because of some fear in our lives. Let me ask you again, what is your fear? For some people, a fear of rejection a fear of rejection has kept many a young man or many a young woman from uh, companionship when they inwardly, desperately long for companionship. A fear of failure keeps many people, many people in church, from getting outside their comfort zone and unleashing creativity. But a fear of the unknown outside that box keeps them from doing it. There are people who have a fear of speaking in public that, that they have allowed to keep them from making a public profession of Christ. Even in spite of the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 that professing Jesus Christ as Lord is one of the essential elements of a real salvation experience. And yet there are people who are so uh, terror stricken by the idea of publicly professing anything, salvation or otherwise, that they have allowed that fear to paralyze them from experiencing the full completion and the full joy of their salvation. I read one time, I don't know how, how uh, uh, scientific this study is, but there was a study several years ago that said that people's biggest fear, the, the, the most frequently cited fear among human beings, is the fear of speaking in public. That that fear was even greater and more widespread than the fear of death. Now, what that means is if you ever go to a funeral, if that's the case, then you're far better off being in the casket than being the one who's speaking. <laughs> there are some people who let a fear of circumstances keep them from doing things like giving and tithing on a regular basis. I see it all the time. In fact, the majority of Christian people, including a, a majority of people in our church, right here. Thank God for the ones who are faithful in their giving. But there are those, a majority of folks in this church and every other church who do not tithe, do not give because they have a fear that God won't help them through with their lives if they give what He commands them to. What about that? God commands me to do it, but I'm not sure He'll help me if I do it. Well, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And why, why, do people not, why do people not get this? Because of fear. It's either, a fear, it's either because of fear or because of stinginess. I don't know which one is worse, but we're talking about fear here this morning. Some people don't give out of fear. 
And that fear can be debilitating. It really can. So while fear can be constructive, it can be debilitating. Now, here's the third thing I want you to get, and it's this. Fear can be harnessed. In fact, it must be harnessed if we are to use it for the glory of God. Fear must be harnessed. So the question is, how do you harness your fear? Let me give you some, uh, some suggestions on how we might do this. Because I, I, I would venture to say that everybody in this room has some fear. Even those who say that I'm, I'm fearless, I don't fear anything, even those have something to fear. You have big old boys who come walking into church and they come strutting in. What are they afraid of? You say, man, they're afraid of nothing. Oh, yes, they are. They're afraid of looking like a wimp if they do what Jesus wants them to do. They are. Other people walk in. They're afraid of what their parents might say or what their spouse might say or what their children might say if they follow through on something that they know God wants them to do. Some people, it's a fear of making a mistake. For some people, it's a fear of failure. For some people, it's a fear of saying the wrong thing. What is your fear? need to harness that fear. Debilitating fear can be harnessed in a number of ways. First of all, we can harness it by realizing that some fears are ludicrous. They're ludicrous. Take, for example, this fear. I'll try to pronounce it for you, okay? Now, don't, don't ask me to repeat it. I'm going to try to pronounce it one time. Here it is. One, two, three. Frigatriscatacophobia. You know what that is? That is the fear of Friday the 13th. Can you believe that there are people who actually have a fear of Friday the 13th? There are people who won't get out of the bed on Friday the 13th. They will call in sick. They will not move. They will not do anything outside the bed for fear of what will happen on that day. Now, you and I know that Friday the 13th is just another Friday on the calendar. There's nothing sinister about Friday the 13th. That's all in our minds. It's ludicrous. Here's another one. Ambulosubscalophobia. Y'all write that down real quick. Ambulosubscalophobia. The fear of walking under a ladder. There are people who won't walk under a ladder because they fear it. I know some other people who are going down the road at night. If a black cat goes across the street in front of them, they have a fear of a black cat going across the street in front of them. I have ridden with people who ought to be keeping both hands on the steering wheel and they see a black cat go over and they use both hands to make these little marks on the windshield. I'm saying, man, I got a fear of your driving, brother. (laughs) Some fears are just ludicrous. And when we realize that, that that should help us to harness some of those fears. A second thing that we can, uh, a tool that we can use to harness debilitating, debilitating fear is to remember past successes. Remember how sometimes in the past you overcame a fear. And if you can think of some time in your past when you overcame a particular fear, that should give you confidence in overcoming the current fear that is confronting you, our disciples. The disciples of Christ had that one time. You all are familiar with the time when Jesus was out on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in an area called Decapolis, an area that has ten cities, but Jesus wasn't in the city. He was out in the desert, and the disciples were with him. And the Bible says that there were 5,000-plus people out there with him. You remember that? 5,000 people not counting women and children. So there could have been anywhere from uh, five to 15,000 people there. 
And the Bible says that they were hungry and nobody had anything to eat except there was a young boy came by with a lunch sack, had five loaves, two fish, and Jesus got it. And the disciples, when they saw that, were afraid that Jesus would not be able to feed these people. You remember the story. And yet he was able to take the five loaves and the two fish and and divide it up and fully fed all those thousands of people. In one of the Gospels, two chapters later, Jesus and his disciples are in another situation, this time not with 5,000 people, but with 4,000 people. And this time not with five loaves and two fish, but with seven loaves and two fish. So he has fewer people and more food with which to feed the people. And you'd think by remembering the previous time where Jesus fed 5,000 with a smaller amount of food that the disciples would have confidence and faith that Jesus would do it this time. Guess what? They didn't. They did not believe. They they, they tried to get Jesus to send the people away. We're not going to be able to feed them. Why? Because they forgot past successes. And when you forget past successes, past effectiveness, you will be virtually doomed to allowing fear to cripple you in a present situation. There's a third tool that we can use to harness fear, and that is this. Reevaluate the probability of that fear happening. Reevaluate it. You've probably read some of the surveys and statistics. They're, they're, uh, they abound everywhere, but I'll tell you in, in summation what they say. About 95% of what the average person worries about never comes to pass. I mean, it wasn't worth worrying about. 95%. Melanie Greenberg, who is a, a PhD in psychiatry and psychology, wrote a book called The Mindful Self-Express, says this. She says, anxiety makes us feel that the threat is imminent, yet most of the time what we worry about never happens. Never happens. The humanitarian Albert Schweitzer, who did so much work uh, down in the uh, uh, poor sections of Africa, one day he, he met a young boy in Africa. And the boy, all of his young life, he had lived in one of the hottest regions of Africa. He had never been anywhere where the temperature was cooler than 90 degrees. Most of the time it was upper 90s or into the 100s where he'd lived all of his life. And Schweitzer took the young boy with him to Europe on one of his trips to Europe. And it happened to be wintertime in Europe. It was cold. And it was the first time this young African boy had ever experienced cold weather. And he was just astonished by it. He was amazed by it. He was, he was infatuated by it. And one day, while he was outside in the cold, he all of a sudden panicked and started screaming and crying. And he ran into the, the, uh, uh, the residence where they were staying, went into his room and shut and locked the door. Schweitzer went in there to see him, banged on the door, tried to get him to answer the door. For the longest he wouldn't, but he was just wailing and weeping in his room. Finally, Albert Schweitzer managed to get the boy to come to the door and open his door. And Albert Schweitzer said, what in the world is wrong with you? What, what happened? Did somebody mistreat you out on the street or something? He says, no. He said, I just realized I'm on fire inside my body and I couldn't put it out. I'm on fire. You're on fire? <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, I saw smoke come out of my mouth. <laughs> he literally was in the cold weather for the first time in his life and he sees steam come out of his mouth while he's talking. He thought he was on fire. 
He was worried about something that did not even exist, was not even happening. A number of years there was a preaching conference near Sarasota, Florida, and the ministers who were attending that conference were invited to go on a tour of the uh, off-season headquarters of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. And they had a tour guide taking them through the complex. And in one, uh, one part of the tour, they, they were taken through the place where the elephants were kept and fed and cared for. And there were several elephants there. And one of the ministers noticed that the elephants weren't tied down. And this kind of bothered him. And so he says to the guide, he said, uh, uh, should we be worried that these elephants are not tied up or tied down? I mean, shouldn't we be worried about that? And the tour guide said, oh, no. He said, if you'll notice, we, we put some ropes around the ground, around their legs. They think they're tied up, but they're really not. They won't move. I wonder how many of us allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fears of something happening that can't possibly happen. We think we're tied up when in reality we're not. Sometimes we allow Satan to just tie us down and keep us from glorifying God the way we should. Another tool that we can use to harness debilitating fear is to confront it head on. Somebody said this, that exposure, confronting fears head on, is the most important and powerful technique for anxiety. And it involves facing what we fear and staying in the situation long enough for the fear to ultimately go down, which it naturally will do. John Wayne probably said it best, though. John Wayne said this one day. Somebody asked him about courage, what he thought courage was. He says, well, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. That's what courage is. That's what facing your fear is, too. It's being scared to death, but jumping on the horse and confronting the fear that is in your life anyway. Another tool that can be used to harness fear is thinking ahead to the benefits of defeating that fear. Thinking ahead. Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. In other words, look to the final result if, if, if you allow that fear to cripple you, the final result will be failure. Is that what you want? Or if you confront that fear and you look ahead to defeat that fear, those positive benefits hopefully will motivate us to defeat the fear. And then the final tool that we can use to harness fear is to rely on God. Perhaps that's the greatest tool that we have at our disposal as Christians is to rely on God. David said in Psalm 27, verse 1, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And in Psalm 46, he says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I won't be afraid. Relying on God enables us to defeat our fears. Oswald Chambers, a great Christian writer, his classic, My Utmost for His Highest, is one that every Christian should read. 
At one point, Oswald Chambers said this. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So let me ask you, what is your fear? What is the one thing that keeps you from being everything God wants you to be? Is it because it would, it would compromise your macho guys? Is it because you're afraid you might say the wrong thing, ladies? Is it because you don't do anything without the permission or approval of your spouse and you're afraid that he or she would disapprove if you stepped out of your comfort zone and did exactly what God wanted you to do? Is it because you're shy and so you have a fear of just saying anything vocally in front of people? What is it? Do you fear that you're not young enough anymore? Or do you fear that you're not old enough? What is your fear? What is it that is paralyzing you? Let me tell you, whatever it is, I want you to hear the words of Jesus in, from this passage of Scripture because He's not only saying this to the disciples, He is screaming this to you and me this morning. Why are you so afraid? You see, the Lord doesn't want you paralyzed by fear. He wants you to enter into a bold relationship with Him that frees you to be the very person He created you to be. And fear, debilitating fear, has no place in that relationship whatsoever. So what is your fear? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what makes us tick, and you know what tears us up. You know what causes us to be terrorized. You know what strikes us as paralyzing. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to lift up our eyes from whatever fear we might have that surrounds us and help us to see the ability of our God the strength of our Savior. And Lord, help us not to be afraid. Lord, someone here needs to receive you as Savior. I pray that they would not be afraid to make that step of faith. Somebody here who's saved needs to join the church. I pray that you'd help them not to let fear keep them from that blessing. Somebody here needs to make a commitment that perhaps only you and that person knows about. Lord, help us not to allow fear to win in this service. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.